It's about 650 miles to Calgary. So I drove 650 miles one way, got him in my Jeep and drove him. It was about 15 minutes to the airport after his speech. And I gave him our CD. We listened to like one or two songs on the way to the airport and then dropped him off. And um, then I drove another 650 miles back home the next day. Welcome back to another episode of The Big Break, where we explore the details of how today's top songwriters broke into the business and how they stay there. I'm your host, Anthony Bruno, and this week we're talking to Brad Rempel. Brad is a founding member and principal songwriter of the country duo High Valley, along with his brother Curtis. In 2011, the band won five GMA Canada Covenant Awards, including Artist of the Year and Group of the Year. Brad also won a 2016 SoCan Country Music Award for the single Make You Mine, and he's earned four SoCan number one song awards as well, all topping the CMT Canada Countdown chart. Brad has a unique story. He grew up in an isolated Mennonite community in northern Canada where there was like no radio coverage. Uh, his family only had three records to listen to as a kid, so at 12 he formed the band with his brothers and his friends, and the rest is sort of history. Uh, in this episode, we discuss Brad's unlikely path. My personal highlight was was how he drove 650 miles across Canada just for 15 minutes of FaceTime with a man who ultimately helped him engineer his first big break. We also look at how years later, after he gets to Nashville, he takes a huge personal and professional gamble to buy himself out of his first record and management deal, and how that led to a second big break. Uh, it's really, really interesting stuff, and I, I also appreciate some of the um, unique perspectives that he has about artists and how you know, he feels that they should remain grateful uh, for those early contracts that they signed, even if they didn't ultimately last or really were the best contracts ever. Um, but it gets them their start. I don't want to put words into his mouth. I'll let you listen to it uh, directly. It's a great story, so let's get into it. Here's Brad Rempel's Big Break. So, hello. Uh, thanks thanks for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, man. So, where are you, uh, where are you calling us from? I am currently in my TV room in, uh, I live in Spring Hill, Tennessee. So I I just got done in the studio this morning singing some vocals and now I got time for this. All right. Well, we're glad to have you around. So you're in, you're in Tennessee. Um, are you there? You're not from there originally though, correct? No, I'm from, uh, Alberta originally, which is um, something you probably never heard of. So if you know where Juneau, Alaska is, we're, we're the same line as that. So very, very far north. Interesting. interesting. So you're from, you're from Canada, which uh, I don't think I've ever spoken to a Canadian yet on this show. We've, we've, I've had people from all over the world. So you're my first Canadian, I feel. There you go. Hey, proud yeah. to be. <laughs> but um, so let's see here. I guess there's a lot of things we're going to get into, but I also just kind of curious how have you been managing sort of during the, the, the pandemic right now and has, has that been overly disruptive for you? Have you had any, any need to cope in different ways personally and professionally? Yeah. I mean, professionally we had a, a tour. It was us and the Eli Young band. We were doing a tour with live nation. It was in the U S and then it was in Canada as well. And the whole thing got canceled. So, um, th- that's the reality obviously that a lot of people are dealing with right now. Personally, it's been amazing. My, my boys are 11 and eight and my wife and I were just, we're sports freaks. They thankfully are also sports freaks. So, uh, we got baseball, football, and basketball times two kids. And the fact that I've been able to be at a hundred percent of the games this year and about 
90% of the practices has just been so cool. And I, I know that it's tough times for everybody and I'm not making light of that at all, but the silver lining for us has, has been very awesome. You know, I've been hearing a lot of that. Uh, there's this, everyone has an, uh, some, some aspect of their lives that maybe somehow didn't quite get the attention that they would have liked it before that then did so now. So it's, it's, as difficult as, as it has been and, and, and you know the broader you know implications and, and challenges that that, that uh, all this has presented you know I like I like how you find those those silver linings here and there it kind of makes it all worth uh, it makes it a little bit more bearable I guess yeah absolutely it's been you know I, I keep telling my wife like we're gonna look back you know five years 10 years 50 years from now and say remember 2020 when we had so much time together it was so amazing so yeah. Um, as long as it changes at some point, I, I think it'll end up having been a blessing. But you mentioned you had, you were doing some recording just earlier today though, correct? Yeah, we just, um, we've been working on some live, uh, videos and we've been in the studio working on acoustic versions. Uh, we're working on bluegrass versions uh, of our new single, um, working on an EDM version, an alternative mix. I mean, I, I'm in the studio all the time. Oh, great. Now do you have a home studio or have you been going to one? I personally don't have a home studio, but um, our, our producer, um, we're with this company called Full Circle Music. It's Seth Mosley and X O'Connor, and um, they're out of uh, Cool Springs, Franklin, Tennessee area, which is about 20 minutes from me. Mm -hmm. And so I don't go all the way into Music Row uh, to hang out with those guys. I, I go to Music Row all the time, but um, – Sometimes it's cool to just be in Franklin and kind of just go halfway. And then my buddy Ben Stennis literally lives down the street from me by a half mile. And um, um, another and Ben studio all the time. <laughs> Everyone I talked to from Tennessee seems to know Ben, who we who we talked to uh, several episodes ago. So uh, that, it's, it's interesting. interesting yeah, he's, he's the best. And uh, I, today we're keeping his kids. They're often keeping our kids, and uh, we're always trying to. We're like we were quarantine pals, and now it's now that the world's opened up a little bit, it's back to normal. But but our families do pretty much everything together. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I mean, let, let's go back to Canada here for for a little bit. So. Um, you, you mentioned the, the area that you grew up is kind of a smaller area and whatnot, but, you know, just give us a little sense of sort of like your, you know, as a, as someone who is now, you know, professional artist and you know musician and things like that, kind of take us back to, you know, the environment that you grew up in and uh, just how you kind of got exposed to music. Just, just initially, not even like as a career, just like initial, your initial exposure, here's music, here's this thing that I discovered that I liked that sort of thing. I always, I always like to try to find how people who are now in the business sort of first got exposed to music in general and, and, and how they reacted to it. Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty crazy because so, so I'm from La Crete, Alberta. I grew up there. It's a Mennonite town. If you're, if you're not familiar with Mennonites, they're like, uh, basically like Amish people who are too cheap to buy the costume. So we're all like <laughs> old school. And uh, my mom and dad were, were the real old school. They grew up, um, my mom and dad were both born in Mexico of all places in a uh, state of Chihuahua, an area called Quictimuk. And they were horse and buggy, no electricity, li like the Amish. And um, okay. uh, short story long, my, my grandpa bought a truck. You weren't supposed to have a truck. Him and his buddy and their wives and kids rode that grain truck all the way from, from this old colony, Mennonite colony in Mexico, all the way up to Canada. So, there was 20 children and four adults, and 
they made it up to like Southern Ontario, kind of near Detroit. And I guess they had some relatives there and they were hoeing tobacco and kind of farming and trying to make ends meet. And when he got a little money together, the government of Canada was borderline given away. There was some real cheap farmland way up, you know, close to the North Pole. So um, that's how we ended up being born and raised up there. It's kind of crazy. So so German is the main language in my town. Mennonites all speak German. Uh, Mexican technically is my parents, you know, birth certificate, even though they're Caucasian. And I grew up singing because one of the things when my parents you know, found out that they were allowed to have electricity and technology and all this stuff. They, um, they got records and they fell in love with country music. My mom and dad actually drove back down from Canada to Nashville for their honeymoon. So they went to the Grand Ole Opry on their honeymoon and, you know, 30 some odd years later, they got to come back and watch their boys play it many times. So it's been pretty cool. But when I was four years old, our family recorded our first cassette um, it was just like a gospel record that we did in church and, you know, maybe sold 20 copies of it. I have no idea. It was just a little recording in the church, but I was four years old and I had two songs on that album. That's really interesting. So this, this kind of, I want to dig into this a little bit because it fascinates me. So you, you grew up in, in a, in a very, I would call unique uh, culture, I would guess. You know, on one hand, there's, there's, there may be not as much access to the more modern conveniences as the rest of us might have you know, experienced. And, but at the same time, it was still very, very musical. Um, yeah. Did you have exposure to only like certain types of music at, at the time? Or, or, you know, was it like, you know, radio and hearing everything? Or, or No, we, playing? We, were, we were too remote to have radio. It wasn't that we weren't allowed to listen to radio, but our town only got FM radio in the year 2000. So we had an AM uh, radio station about 200 miles away. I remember on the tractor every once in a while, if it was cold enough outside, you'd get a little bit of AM radio. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up with no exposure at all. The best way I can summarize it is I literally didn't know who Michael Jackson was until I moved to Nashville. <laughs> That's amazing. So, and so what were the artists that you mostly heard? Was it, is, was it, I think you mentioned country is what you guys listened to or, or played at the, at, at least, right? And- yeah. Um, we had a record player. Um, so, um, later on in life, of course, you know, CDs come along and, our town was probably late to that party for sure. But um, growing up, growing up, we had records. So um, even though this is the '90s, I had uh, most of my music came from Ricky Skaggs' record and uh, Buck Owens and the Everly Brothers. I'd say by far those were the three main records that we listened to in the house. Mom and Dad had a few more than that, but Ricky Skaggs would take up ninety percent of the the time of, of what we listened to. And then um, as m- I've got three older sisters and they came home with CDs and it was Diamond Rio, Alabama, Shenandoah, pretty much all vocal groups. Being a Mennonite, you, you always sing harmony because churches have either no instruments or like maybe an organ. So it's all like four part harmony all the time. So harmony is just kind of what we knew. So even when we did start getting CDs, it was all the country vocal groups that we gravitated toward. That's interesting. And so that kind of you know blends in my next question, which was getting into creating music yourself. Was that 
a output of just your involvement in the church and what the church did, or was it more, or was it additionally maybe um, a factor of you're basically only listening to three albums and in order to hear something, you got to kind of create it yourself. Yeah. I think it's part, I think it's part of that. Um, You know, nowadays my kids, anybody really in the world um, has so much technology and access to entertainment, man, I'm bored. I'm watching one thing on my iPad while the TV's on in the background, while my friends are texting, you know, there's so much going on. We definitely didn't have that. So as a four-year-old singing on that record, you know, I, I keep singing at these like really small local talent contests. I remember being five or six and winning second place and getting 25 bucks and going to a hardware store and buying one of those farm sets, kind of like the plastic cows and fences and barns <laughs> and stuff. So that was my first foray into like making money off of music, right? But um, you got to remember that it was incredibly conservative, our, our upbringing. So there's this band comes along. They're called the Mid-South Boys. They're signed with Warner Nashville. I had no idea about any of this at the time, but they were signed with Warner, Warner Nashville, Warner Chapel. And they had somehow people in our town had heard of them because they were very like family friendly with their music. So they were coming to a town, the nearest what you would refer to as a town, the nearest one to where I'm from is 300 miles away. Oh my so, goodness. Um, it had like a Walmart and fast food. So that, that was the closest. And um, anyway, this band mid South was coming out there. So mom and dad drove me and my brothers out to see them. And um, that was 1996, I believe. And that was the first time we'd been to a concert and we heard this band and loved them. And we started high Valley um, the next, right after that, we became a, we became a band. It was 97. So that's 23 years ago. We started our band and we were pretty much a mid South cover band for the first year. All we did was try and learn their songs. And, um, we ended up starting to record albums that I never, ever, ever want you to hear in, <laughs> in 1998. But uh, years go by, I get to know the Mid-South guys. I get to be their booking agent in Canada. They let us open for them in small towns in the U.S. And and that whole, it's kind of crazy, but our, our whole career started with going to our first concert and just kind of following in their footsteps. That's really interesting. So so you have to, so you literally have to drive 300 miles to the nearest, quote, town to see this band. And the next day, you and your brothers form your own band, High Valley, to essentially make cover songs of that band. Yeah, and it wasn't me and my brothers to start. It was uh, me and uh, one of my brothers who's not in the band anymore, Brian, and uh, a bunch of kids, you know, from from our little town. And when I say there were there there were other towns, they're just tiny, tiny, tiny little towns. But the nearest right. McDonald's or Walmart or movie theater or shopping that that was three hundred miles away. Okay, okay. So, but it, so, so you're playing, you're, and you're, so you're playing the cover songs. You're, you're doing some things locally, things like that. It, that was more for fun. I'm guessing. How about if you don't mind aging yourself here? About how old were you guys when you put all this together? Uh, when we started the band, I was 12. So I'm 36 <laughs> now. So we've been doing it for 24 years. That's incredible. So my, my, I'm assuming that when you at 12, this was just sort of like a fun hobby. It was, but we did a concert in town. We sold. I remember our first. We ordered 500 CDs of that first record. It was called Comfort Zone, and the album cover, we looked anything but comfortable. It was uh, super awkward. And um, 
we ordered 500 copies, but if you remember when they used to press CDs, there'd sometimes be an over or under. And we ended up getting 543. And we have this whole thing planned, a CD release concert. We're going to play in the like middle school gymnasium and, and uh, just take like donations and sell CDs. Well, we get the CDs all shipped to our house. I open the box, take off the plastic. Um, by now, of course, we have a CD player in the living room. And it still has a record player, by the way. We had a record on top, double cassette, and then CD, all in, all in the same thing, which is pretty cool. Um, I put in the CD, and I'm about to hear what I think is a High Valley record. And the music coming out of the stereo is, we're off to see The Wizard, The Wonderful no way. And we had never heard of The Wizard of Oz. And I didn't know what that was, but I knew it wasn't me and it wasn't what we had recorded. So later on in life, I found out about The Wizard of Oz and what that was. And I realized, hey, that's that song that we had 543 copies of instead of our album. So somehow they messed up at the plant at the factory and instead of stamping these CDs with high valleys, 10 amazing creations, they <laughs> some like, I think it was probably like some school play or, or I don't know what, but anyway, it was the wizard of Oz soundtrack. That's great. It wasn't the original. It was like some other, some other school production of the wizard of Oz. I, I think so. I, I can't guarantee, I can't confirm or deny because sure. uh, we sent all of them back and they, I don't even have one call. I should have now in retrospect, I should have a high Valley record. That's actually the wizard of Oz, but um, we sent them all back. So by the time I found out what wizard of Oz was, I, I had no recollection of what that sounded like. So I'm not really sure. No, no sweat. No sweat. Did you ever get the proper CDs? We did. And then we did a CD release concert. Curtis, who's in the band now, um, drove in our, in our parade, kind of like you'd have a county fair in a town here. Um, growing up, we had the Farmer's Day Parade, and Curtis drove a dirt bike. He was about, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and he drove a little 50cc dirt bike with signs hanging off of both sides of it that said High Valley CD Release Concert, and uh, he promoted the show. So that was pretty <laughs> awesome. So that, that, that's your, uh, that's your you're dipping your toe into the business, so to speak. So this this is really interesting. I mean, like I I, I kind of get I'm, I'm starting to get a feel for the environment that you're growing up in and, and that you're starting to make music in and whatnot. And it's and it's certainly um, uh, di- both both very standard yet also incredibly unique. It's really interesting. But w- at what point did this become something that you know, okay, I'm 12 years old and I'm doing this with my friends and my and my family and whatnot to like okay, this is what I'm gonna do. Like I'm gonna be um you know High Valley is gonna be my job, not my hobby. Literally, I know this sounds unrealistic but i think it started on day one i'm pretty um laser focused i get accused of being uh too good at compartmentalizing there's a different pragmatic um all kinds of fancy words but basically what it means is i'm super boring narrow-minded and laser focused and i don't really like i love music sports and and real estate and i don't really like many other things. I don't have like a million different hobbies or passions. Um, every single day that I ever go to a Mexican restaurant, I order chicken fajitas. I just do the same thing. So when I was 12 and I wanted to have a band, I just thought for the rest of my life, I want to have a band and this is what I want to do. So I, I, I would say that I came close to giving up for sure multiple times, but I always wanted it 
to work. So we started getting paid to do music. About two years later, I remember our first paying gig we ever had was about a thousand miles away in Saskatchewan. The town was called Love, Saskatchewan. I remember their post office had a big sign that said, mail it with love. And um, we got paid 750 bucks to play this music festival. We were teenagers, so our mom and dad had to drive us there. And our our drummer's parents drove a separate vehicle. They were both driving like vans, pulling little campers. And I remember the magic of uh, profit and loss because we got paid 750 bucks. Two vehicles had to drive 2,000 miles round trip, had to eat food, get gas, and somehow at the end, our parents still gave us 750 bucks. So uh, that was um, some pretty unrealistic um, fi- financing there, but, but that, that was, that was how it worked. And of course, shortly thereafter, we'd get our driver's license and learn that uh, gas costs a lot and hotels cost a lot and food costs a lot. And, and um, we had to figure out the business side of it, but yeah, it started pretty quick. And we, we I think ever since the year 2001, we were doing over a hundred days a year on the road. So wow. we've been doing that for 20 years. Now I just, and I got to ask, you know, as, as a kid growing up in in that kind of environment, sort of isolated and things like that was, 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 was there a part of that was uh, an itch to sort of get out and see more? And I don't know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not dismissing or, or any way disparaging the small town life. In fact, I'm looking at small towns to move to myself at some point very soon. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just trying to like, you know, imagine what it might be like for a young kid kind of growing up like that and, and sort yeah. of getting out a little bit and then having some music, you know, underneath you and being like, okay, this is, this is what's, what's sort of motivated me to make this happen. Yeah, I think um, there's no drive at all to get out of the small town because all you know is the small town. But then the moment you see a different town, that's interesting. You start seeing a few more. Now they're all interesting. You meet people from different towns and places. Of course, Nashville was always a very exciting concept. Like, holy, if I could ever get to Nashville, you know. So uh, we'd heard about that stuff. Of course, our parents haven't been, you know, to Mexico. Our mom had lived in Bolivia for a little while. We we were, um, our town's crazy. Like, nobody in our town is a normal Canadian. They're all either from South America or Central America or, you know, there's, it's a very transient town. Mennonites kind of, um, they try and escape the world. So if the world starts getting around you, you just move. And if you have to move to a different country, a different continent, it doesn't matter. You, you go get somewhere where you can kind of be by yourself, a little less government and a little more, you know, running the show yourself. So, um, I, th- I think in our nature, in our blood, in our culture, there was a lot of that wanting to see the world. And absolutely for sure, once I started having these role models in these other bands, I wanted to be where they were from. I, I found everything about them fascinating. And um, part of touring, the whole word itself, you know, if you want to be a touring band, that means you're going to get out there. So I knew that much. And I couldn't wait to turn 16 and, and start driving around. And we even started flying. We toured Belize, Central America. I think we did like 60 shows in Belize over the years. Um, my sister was a school teacher there for a couple of years. And we kind of went down to see her and a local radio station asked if we'd partner with them to promote the station. And next thing you knew, we were doing a three-week tour of tiny, tiny little towns in Belize that only ever had reggae music and 
here's a bunch of white Canadians trying to entertain him. It was hilarious. That's great. That's great. Now, now you also mentioned that you had uh, you were a, you were a booking agent for for the band. I'm sorry, I forgot the band's name already. Yeah, Mid South. Um, yeah, business was all in my brain. I, I don't quite know why. Um, supposedly, the first song I ever wrote as a kid was called "Ants in My Pants" for twenty dollars, and I think those were also the only lyrics in the song. But um, I'd stand up on a little like footstool in front of the couch and my sisters would listen to me sing ants in my pants for $20. And apparently I even then knew that commerce should be part of the equation. And I wanted to sell these ants or something stupid. I have no idea, but business was always part of it. And when I met mid South and I knew they wanted shows and we needed shows, I was like, Hey, I'll book you guys up in Canada. If if you'll let us, you know, open for you in the U.S. And that's kind of how that situation started. Okay. So I'm going to sort of the transition a little bit here to our, to our theme of our show, which is the big break. I don't want to assume that that, that relationship was the thing that made things happen, but you know, can you, can you, can you kind of give me any ideas to, you know, what, was there anything that happened along the way that really, uh, turn the corner for, for the band a little bit. I mean, I know that it sounds like this was one of those things where you were just going to keep doing it and you're going to take it in whatever direction that it took you, uh, big or small. And that was sort of like your commitment, but I'm just kind of wondering if there was anything that either happened by accident or anything that you arranged by design that, um, that's, that sort of maybe put this on a more comfortable path instead of just an aspirational one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like there was big break, volume one in 2007 and then there was like massive break in 2015 so they're kind of two different ones but the first one and both of them are things where like you can't take any credit for it and you can try your artist but you look back on your life and you say wow like you know i I believe that before i was born god had these little things planned out and it was just crazy to be a part of it so fast forward a few years we've been doing this for a long time um, we've been on the road. We've been doing all this stuff with Mid South. We're we're doing our own shows. I get married in two thousand and three. We're driving a Sprinter van, doing laps around the United States and Canada. Coming home to you know, we always jokingly said, "Come home to do your laundry and then leave for another few months." So we were we were rocking pretty hardcore, and. The guy who produced Mid-South, the band I keep talking about, he had also produced Ricky Skaggs, who was my role model. And he had produced, you know, a few other bigger things, but those were the things that were like, in my mind, huge. His name was John Mays. And I heard, I can't remember how, but I heard that he was coming to Calgary, Alberta to be a keynote speaker at the Gospel Music Awards. So I find uh, out that you can, you know, join this conference or pay a couple hundred bucks or something to be part of it. And I call the number and I say, I'm willing to pay to be part of this conference if I can have lunch with John Mays. (laughs) (laughs) They said, the guy's name was Leroy Harder. Leroy said, uh, uh, he doesn't have any time for lunch, but we do need somebody to drive him back to the airport after his speech. I said, all right, I'll do it if I can be his driver. I was, um, yeah, this was, this was in the early days. So anyway, it would have been, it's about 650 miles to Calgary. 
So I drove 650 miles one way, got him in my Jeep and drove him. It was about 15 minutes to the airport after his speech. And I gave him our CD and we listened to like one or two songs on the way to the airport and then dropped him off. And um, then I drove another 650 miles back home the next day. So 1,300 miles for about 15 minutes of FaceTime. That has to be one of the, my favorite stories that I've ever heard. Of. <laughs> I'm not yeah. kidding. That's fantastic. 650 miles for a 15-minute FaceTime. What was the result of that? What the was result what? was he told me that uh, the mixing wasn't very good on the album, and he'd try and uh, get send me an email of different guys I could remix the record, and definitely nothing like, wow, these are great songs or anything like that. Nothing remotely positive. The most positive was that I got to meet John Mays and he had produced some of my favorite stuff in the world. However, a few months later, I get a phone call. I remember exactly where I was. I actually parked the Sprinter van and got out and started pacing up and down the highway while I was talking because it was John Mays and he called. This is when MySpace was cool. And he said, man, my marketing guy at the record company um, got on your MySpace and saw all your dates and and, um, we'd like to fly you guys out to our owner's compound is they're the owner of their label at this amazing like private golf course and all this stuff in washington state and basically it was like um, us and 10 other artists were all getting flown out there to hang out for five days write songs get to know the label and now i know in hindsight that they do this every year and they usually sign one of the one of the bands that they fly out at the time, I didn't really know. I just knew it was a cool opportunity and they were going to pay for it. So I was beyond thrilled. We flew out there. All the other bands had showcased on the same day, but we were booked that day. So we kind of got to the little retreat a day late. So they rented a pizza place and had like 50 people in this little pizza place. And um, we did a little showcase in the corner of the pizza place. And the next day they offered us a record deal. And that was the beginning of us moving to Nashville, me having a publishing deal. Um, they were a little indie label and they partnered, um, with a, with a guy named Phil Vassar in Nashville, um, who tried to get us on country radio here. And we got like, did really good on Sirius XM, the highway, but we only peaked at like 56 on the billboard chart. But in Canada, they partnered with open road universal and we started having hits in Canada. We started having top 20s and top 10s. And I don't think we ever had a number one when we were with them. But we had about probably 10 or 15 um, hits in Canada with, with that label. That's great. That's really interesting. And then, and so just make sure I understand, was that – so you, you moved from Canada to, to Nashville – to record and such, but the hits are happening still back in Canada. Do I, do I have yeah, that right? Yeah, the same, you know, the dream is always to break on the U S side of the border as a Canadian artist, but there is a very, very thriving country music scene up in Canada. So, oh, yeah. um, and it's absolutely wonderful. So yeah, they, Canada has been amazing to us and get, given us honestly a, an entire livelihood. So, yeah, they, they partnered with uh, one company in the U.S. and one in Canada, and the one in the U.S. tried their hardest and, um, like I said, made us do really well on, like, satellite radio, but we never 
we had like moderate success, I would say, in the U.S. with that label um, from 2010 to about 2014. So what was it like relocating to Nashville then? Um, I mean, you, you've obviously you, you were been around quite a bit before that that move happened, but, but yeah. living in, 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 uh, in the Nashville area is, uh, I would imagine, a much different thing. Did that, did, that, did that move itself have any particular... I don't know, challenges or benefits. I mean, I, I mean, benefits I can imagine industry wise, yeah. right. But, um, you know, that, that, that's a different experience. Yeah. Starting in the year 2000, I'd say we came to Nashville every year, maybe once. Okay. Uh, so you, you were well familiar with the area then. Sort of as much as you can be with that, you know, annual trip starting in 07 when we signed the record deal. Now it was a whole new ball game. We were staying in those suburban lodge and homestead inn and suites, those extended stay hotels where you, rent them by the week and you have a little stovetop in your in your room and i mean we were i always tell people i moved to nashville in 2010 but or 2009 sorry but i'd already been staying in extended stay hotels for two and a half years at that point that when we moved here 11 years ago it wasn't like we were moving here it's more like we were moving out of a hotel and into a house (laughs) so um yeah that was it was just necessary. I knew that if I wanted to be a good songwriter, I needed to move down here. Um, not that you can't do stuff, obviously, via Zoom now. We all know that. But being around such great songwriters every day really makes you realize what a big fish you were in, in, in a little, you know, in a small pond. And when your waitress is probably a better singer than you and the chef in the back of the restaurant is probably a better guitar player than you, it really makes you realize the competition level. Yeah. I hear that a lot with the folks that I've interviewed from Nashville, that is that, that word competition, right? And it's, it's just sort of the thing that gives you a little more, I'm what's the word I'm looking for, a, a little more motivation, I guess, to kind of keep it up. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say it's competition with the other people. It's competition with yourself to be like, oh, okay. Oh, wait, that guy's really like writing a song every single day. I really need to up my game. I need to push myself harder because what you thought was good enough, you realize, like I used to think, hey, I wrote five songs. I bet one of them's a hit. And then you find out that every single week you go take meetings, or I would, with different A&R people, and I'd play them five or ten songs and maybe – Every three years, they'd call me back and love one of them. You know, it's not like it's not like twenty percent of your songs are going to be massive hits. So right. that that first, what I call big break number one, um, set me up for for what would ultimately be the real game changer by getting an actual taste of of what it took to to make it all the way. Well, you're, you're, you're doing a good job of keeping me on track. I was just getting ready to shift back to, to what you mentioned before is big break number two. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had our Canadian success. We've had our, you know, I don't like to think of anything as a failure, but we've had our single, you know, stall out on the U.S. charts. And and now it's, um, I, I decided it's scary and I'm nervous about it, but we decide to buy our way out of our record deal and out of our management contract and go completely independent. And well, first, so I got to ask two questions there. One, yeah. why? And then two is how? Um, yeah, I got to be careful here. So sure. I, have, I have all the respect in the world for, 
for the people that gave us that record deal. Um, they're awesome. They, as a matter of fact, they are literally one of the most powerful. I mean, they've got Lauren Daigle right now and she is just a massively successful artist there. They're doing great things. I just went for barbecue with John Mays the other day. We're still buddies, but they weren't, they weren't, um, well connected in the country music space. They were more connected in the kind of that CCM world. And, um, I felt like we had, we had reached the ceiling of what we were going to do there. And because of my personality and how aggressive I am, I kind of had made so many connections in Nashville, whereas instead of the label or management introducing me to country music people I needed to know, it was the other way around where I'd get to know somebody and I would try and introduce my label to the people that really needed to be part of our career. So it felt like why on earth would we be, you know, doing this together when maybe I could use some of these relationships to build our career um, instead. So does that make sense? It does. It totally makes sense. Yeah. So, so we bought our way out. um, And now all of a sudden we're forced to pay for our own records again, which we hadn't done in a long time. Right. And that's what I wanted to get into just because this is kind of an area that, that I focus on quite a bit anyway, was that, you know, buying your way out, it sounds like a good idea, but it's not exactly like a, like an easy thing to do. I mean, right now, I don't know if you saw like just in the last few days, just in terms of timing for where we are in the world while we're recording this, Kanye just tweeted out all of his record contracts and asking lawyers to look at it to figure out way how he can get out of it and get his masters back. So like artists are always talking about doing them. I'm wondering how you make yeah. that uh, happen. Yeah. And I think I have a pretty big beef with artists that complain about bad record deals. I, I, I have signed very bad record deals. I've signed a horrible publishing deal um, back in the day. But the person paying you money for your music or for part of your career is clearly at that moment willing to pay you more money for something than anybody else in the world. Everybody else doesn't believe in you or they don't even think there is such a thing as the music business in your small town where you're from. So the first person that sticks their neck out to yes, get ownership of your masters in exchange for money. I don't understand why we try and crucify them later on in our careers when all of a sudden we're making real money and and now we just hate them and think they're evil people. It's like, what about back in the day when nobody would give you five bucks for anything you had and this person offered you some real money to live off of? So I just think it's a bit of an ungrateful attitude that a lot of us artists develop. Once we realize that our music does work and it does sell, then all of a sudden we think everybody who ever bought it from us is evil for, uh, and I, I just, that frustrates me. So I, that's a sidebar conversation, but, yeah, but, I, but I try and teach my kids to be incredibly thankful for, for every opportunity and, and, um, I just think it's kind of pathetic to look back later on in life and, and be angry at people who actually gave you your start. So, so did I want to buy our way out of it? Yes. Was it necessary? Absolutely. Did I hate their guts? No, because they got us to this place. They had, they never signed me and called me and said, Hey, please fly out to Washington state to sing at a pizza place. I never would have moved to Nashville. So a lot of thankfulness there, but 
we bought our way out. I knew this producer who never produced a country song in his life, but man, was he a great producer and great songwriter. And I called up Seth Mosley and I said, man, would you be willing to like low budget, just record 10 songs for us? We're going to be independent. He said, yes. And, um, for a tiny little budget, we recorded a few songs and the first two songs we wrote and recorded with him and Ben Stennis were, um, make you mine. And she's with me. There you go. And so life goes on. Um, we release them. We do a deal, um, with a distribution company and label up in Canada to get those songs out. And we start having gold records in Canada, which we'd never had before and, um, big hits. And we'd always had like hits in Canada, but now we were having like legit big time, you know, most played song of the year that those kind of hits where they were like kind of the songs for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, these, the, you, you, you won, awards for this for make you mine i mean that was that was sort of the your the the real big feather in your cap so to speak right yeah that was kind of the the um beginning of of things kind of cranking wide open and so there's a guy named paul brand who definitely deserves a lot of credit for our career because um he's a huge success up in canada and he had success in the u.s uh, back in the day as well and he um he kind of took a liking to us. We were huge fans of his and he ends up putting us on the country music awards in Canada when we had no right to be there. And he, he strong armed the country music association into allowing us on the award show. And pretty soon we're opening for him and, and I'm, I'm backtracking here, but I just want to make sure he gets credit because he's part of the story too. And how Canada started paying attention to us and having those, top twenties and stuff. But then after make you mine and she's with me, all of a sudden it was really, really rocket. Well, Paul is visiting in Nashville and he says, my son's going to some jujitsu lesson. Would your son want to go? I say, sure. So I take drew there and it's me and Paul watching our sons do jujitsu. And he's like, Hey Brad, this is my friend, Ken Tucker. You guys should know each other. And I get to know Ken. Ken runs Apple music at the time. And I say, hey, we should go for breakfast sometime. So Ken and I go to Panera Bread, and I always say that I paid for one bagel, and it changed our entire career. But I, I buy him a bagel at Panera Bread, and the next week he puts Make You Mine on the front page of iTunes in the U.S. And we sell, I think, 3,500 copies that week as an independent artist in the U.S., which... For perspective, the week before we sold, I think, four copies. <laughs> um, I know Ken, actually. Ken and I oh, worked awesome. Ken's yeah. amazing. Ken and I worked together at Billboard. Uh, for We overlapped for a spell. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, I love Ken. I still talk to Ken all the time. And so Ken puts us on the front page. My lawyer calls me and says, dude, these sales, like record labels need to know about this. And... Um, so record labels start paying attention. Um, we are completely independent. We start meeting with management and Brian Coleman and Alex safe with union entertainment group. They sign us. We think we've got it all figured out. We're like, yeah, we're going to sign this independent deal. And they said, man, give us a couple weeks. And after signing with Brian and Alex, they, um, 
they started making calls and all of a sudden people in New York were paying attention and people in LA were paying attention. And I was like, it was just crazy, but it wasn't happening. It was just kind of percolating, I guess. So all of a sudden people knew what was up. Yeah. Well, I go into Autumn House at Universal, um, A&R over at Universal. She's a red light management now. And I met with her about once a month, maybe every couple months, and I'd play her songs. And this time I was trying to play her stuff to get on a Keith Urban record. And halfway through listening to about five songs, she like hits pause on the CD player and says, this changes everything. This is, this isn't for Keith. This is for you. And, and I don't know what it was about that day, but maybe it was because the guys in New York had been telling them about us or whatever. But either way, all of a sudden, I am like driving home and she's calling me and asking me to send her different versions of songs. And by that night I told my wife, I was like, I think they're going to offer us a record deal. Well, the next day, Mike Dungan at Universal is like walking us around the label, telling everybody they're offering us a record deal. And I'm calling my attorney being like, I, I just played her a couple of songs for Keith Urban and now this is happening. And, and Pretty soon I'm getting offered publishing deals. And my brother Curtis is in Canada at the time visiting family. And in the next like 48 hours, we have two different record deals from two companies on paper offers. And then we end up getting a third and a fourth. And and I never even called them until it all shook down. It was all real because it felt a little fake. And I called them in Canada. I said, hey, dude, I guess somebody decided that we're cool all of a sudden because I don't know what happened, but we have four different record deals and are you cool if I choose one? And he's like, yeah, I trust you. And so I met with everybody and we, we chose Warner brothers, uh, Nashville, Atlantic records, New York. And, um, I ended up choosing Sony ATV as a, a publishing company for myself as a songwriter and then Warner Atlantic for our band. And the next three years were us visiting every radio station and late night TV and morning shows and um, ended up having back-to-back gold records in the U.S., which hadn't been done since Shania Twain. So it was a big deal for a Canadian to, to you know, gold in Canada is 40,000, gold in the U.S. is 500,000. So it was a very different world. And, yeah, just all kind of... A trip to Panera Bread, a trip to Jiu-Jitsu, and a trip to pitch some songs for Keith Urban and all kind of just blew up. That's really interesting. And, and the, the one thing I want to make clear here or want to understand better is that were you kind of at like a tipping point where you're not sure if you're focusing on recording as high value versus just being being a songwriter uh, uh, and focusing on that career-wise instead? Or was it where you kind of had a foot in both camps and we're going to continue that? I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of the – the, the decision making where you were because I mean I know a lot of yeah. folks start off you know recording artists and then, then they become songwriters and they and that's their that's their path to success and then but then or others start off songwriting and eventually switch and become recording artists themselves you seem to be you were kind of hopping in both areas for a while like it sounds like yeah and I still do and I I've been very blessed to get a bunch of um, other artists to cut my songs and. Okay. You know, sometimes just having their voice on it can make it a hit that I never would have been able to. And or sometimes we're done an album and there's a bunch of songs that I, I personally thought were were great. But maybe my A&R management, my brother 
um, somebody didn't didn't love them, and then I I play them for other people. So yeah, in this case, uh, and and currently, I never ever stop. I mean, you could ask Autumn House right now. I still I probably pitched her a song last five days. Um, I always write songs every day, and our band is probably going to record two or three of them, maybe five per year. So there's going to be a couple of hundred, you know, songs floating out there that need a home. So, um, I'm, I'm always pitching my stuff. My, my friend Taylor Lindsay, she's at Sony here in Nashville and she's done, you know, amazing last few years. They've got like Kane Brown and Marin Morris and she's done, she's amazing. Um, Tennille Towns, they, they've just signed great artists and, and had great songs and, Taylor's awesome. But anyway, I, I was into pitcher after we were signed. I, I was in one day to pitch her songs for her artists. And she's like, you know, you know, nobody does this. Right. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you're signed to a different label and you're walking in here as a song plugger, pitching me your songs as a songwriter. I'm like, Oh yeah. Is this weird? Should I not be doing this? She's like, no, it's awesome. I'm just letting you know that nobody else does it. So <laughs> maybe more sure. kind of weird that way, but I, I just like the business side of it. I like, making sure because we have people that do that for me you know like uh song pluggers big tom luteran at sony atv has been my guy for five years and that's their job is to pitch my songs around town um and they do a great job but i i always want to make sure you know everybody's hearing them well i love that you're into the business side of it I mean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, some of the creative stuff in this and that, but if I could just close here, maybe just a couple of business related um, questions. And, and I, I want to go back for a minute to you buying out of the, of that record contract, forget about the motivations and whatnot. I'm still kind of curious about how did you, and please, if, you, if there's areas here that you can't get into, just let me know legally or otherwise, but like, how, how did, how did, how did you, did you have to do, did you have to make any moves to, um, be able to buy yourself yourself out. When you say buy yourself out, I'm imagining there's some, um, you know, financial maneuvering involved in, in trying to get out. Without breaking into specifics, basically, um, I, I think this is pretty standard, but a, lo a lot of contracts have sunset clauses, you know, and, and uh, that's how ours worked. So, We'll let you go if you give us a percentage of your career moving forward for X amount of years. And that's what we did. And it ended up being a good deal for both parties because they had to stop spending money on us. But because we landed that big record deal almost right away, um, our career took off. And I think their, their percentage that they got there for a little bit probably made them more money than all those years of when they had full ownership of us and they were spending so much money on us. All right. So it wasn't like you needed to like come up with a bunch of cash to hand to them to get out of your contract. No, it was more of like a long-term thing. I mean, if you had the money and you could do it that way, it'd probably be, probably be the smarter option if you're betting on yourself. But in instead what usually happens is you promise them like, Hey, you built me up and I'll let you see the, the long tail here. Okay. All right. And it does come down to that. And you said it before betting on yourself is, is that, that yeah, you, you knew what you wanted to do. You knew where you wanted to go. That, that sounded like a pretty pivotal moment that, that set the stage for all these other steps and interesting um, developments that took place afterwards. So that, that, that seemed to be a big, 
a big moment. Was it, was it difficult to do? Was it, was it, was it a scary sort of, did it feel risky? Oh you know, yeah. We're not getting into like TMI land. I was, before I made the call to ask out of the deal, I was sick to my stomach. Like you can only imagine. So I was very, very, very sick and it was all self-inflicted. <laughs> there was, there was no virus going around. It was just me being killer nervous because these people, like I said, I was very thankful for what they had done for me, but I wanted to go, I wanted to go one step further. It's kind of like, you know, we're playing triple a baseball and I wanted to play in the majors or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I wanted to, I never woke up and started this band and said, I want people in a certain region to hear the music. I wanted the entire world to hear our music. And I've always wanted, like Ricky Skaggs did for me, that super fun old school thing. I thought, man, I know that our music can do that for the whole world, not just for Canada. And um, that's what was so special to me about Make You Mine being the first song that kicked the doors down for us because that was a duet with Ricky Skaggs. If you go on YouTube and, and listen to Make You Mind, watch the video, that whole second verse is Ricky Skaggs singing. And unfortunately, the version on the radio in the U.S. Um, doesn't have Skaggs singing on it. For That's another conversation with all the kind of label decisions that got made there to how to launch a new artist. But I wish I wish they had kept him on it, but, but it's, it's all fine. Um, but anyway, it's just special for me that our, our first big break was a was a duet with Ricky Skaggs. It's a it's a it's a really wonderful story. I mean, the 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 unique sort of upbringing, the the unique way of getting into the music business, the driving six hundred and fifty miles for that fifteen minute FaceTime. I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff in there that I find fascinating. The business side of taking the risks and and you know getting out of the deal. But I I do want to just close by saying I I thought it was really um great what you said about that you know, the, you, while you've made the decision to get out of one particular deal, it wasn't like the people that you had that deal with were bad. They, they took a risk on you. And, and so those early contracts that we hear about being, you know, some of, some of them, some of them are, some of them can be predatorily bad, but a lot of times they're, they're, they're quote bad just because this is a company taking a big risk on, on something that's unproven. And so therefore in order to take that risk, they're going to get more out of that in, in return. And it's only afterwards when you've actually built yourself to a certain point where you've got the the standing to um, to try to get a better deal, and and then because it's less of a risk now to bet on you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean if you're going to go out there and you're a multimillionaire and you're going to invest in something that's going to make you money instead of you know make your bank account smaller, music is nowhere near the safest bet by any stretch. I mean, think of how many times you think somebody's the next big deal, and then five years later you they're not even doing music anymore in Nashville. That happens. That happens every single day that you hear of somebody giving up on this town, you know, and at the same time, there's the airport still has inbound flights and there's still a bunch of kids getting off with guitars ready to be the next big thing. So it's, it's, you can't blame people who, who bet money on music that, that are going to lose. And then some of them are going to win. It's just, it's part of the deal. And I've got involved in the business side. I, I help manage, two different bands now and they're both doing awesome and, and I love them, but I've told both of them, I'm like, Hey, one's called Tim and the glory boys. And one's called the Hunter brothers. I'm like, when you guys, when I can't do for you what you need, just move on. You're not going to like, 
no hard feelings. I'm going to try and help you as best as I can, but don't, um, I understand I've done it to other people. You might do it to me. That's, that's how life works. So no hard feelings here. Let's just try and help each other out while we can. It's a great way to look at it. Uh, let's close with what, what, what's next. What, what's coming up that you want to mention anything you want to sort of promote or put out there before we, uh, before we end our call today, man, I mean, just getting a little, I think everybody during COVID maybe is getting a little stir crazy and, and doing weird stuff. So we've been in the last few weeks, I mean, in the last few hours, I've literally listened to the same song in a normal version, a bluegrass version, an acoustic version, an EDM version. Uh, I mean, so we're doing everything. We're going all the way from taking country songs, making them EDM to taking them all the way to their bluegrass roots. Um, so yeah, you'll be hearing a lot of different variations of our songs and it's just really fun for me to explore that and even to share with our fans, Hey, you, you might think this is how the song always sounded, but guess what? It started on just a guitar and here's the different ways. I I think if I was a fan of a band, I'd want to hear the infancy of the song and I'd love to hear any, any crazy places it could go. So we're going to try and do a little more of that since we got time on our hands and um, just explore different variations of these songs. We've, we've been working uh, with Sam Burgesson on a bunch of EDM things. And I always think bluegrass is the original EDM because it's kind of just four on the floor the whole time. And uh, <laughs> it, it's going to be fun for people to hear this stuff. That's great. I'll look for you. I never heard bluegrass is the, is the original EDM. I got to remember that one for sure. But um, this has been great. I would, you know, maybe we could do like a round two something. Like I've got a vision for like a season of this show where I kind of bring back some of the greatest hits. And I think you'd have to definitely be on that and we can get into some more of the business stuff too. Well, man, really I'd love to. I, I'm so thankful you took the time. And, um, you know, normally you get about 30 seconds to say something before the next song. So this is cool to kind of dive into the story and hopefully, um, hopefully I gave credit to the right people that deserve it because there's a lot of people for sure that, um, that, that do. And mom and dad, our mom and dad, of course, starts with them and that crazy trip up here. And now they, they taught us to sing in the first place. All right. Well, listen, listen, thanks again. Good luck with you with all the versions of the songs and whatnot. And, um, once you're back out on the road, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, I definitely hope to come out and check you out. Awesome, man. I appreciate this so much. You've just listened to another episode of the Big Break Podcast. The Big Break is brought to you by Royalty Exchange, an online marketplace matching artists with investors. If you'd like to see if there's an investor interested in your music catalog, simply connect your PRO account to our platform for an instant analysis. Once connected, you can start reviewing offers immediately, or if you like, you can test the marketplace by setting your own asking price. Artists have raised more than $81 million debt-free through the Royalty Exchange marketplace without giving away any of their rights. We provide the financial security you need to achieve full artistic freedom. Visit www.royaltyexchange.com today. I've been your host, Anthony Bruno. Please check the show notes to learn how to follow me or this week's guest. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this show, please drop us a line at press at royaltyexchange.com. Many thanks to our producer, John Jestel, our audio engineer, David Burns, and to the entire songwriter community for continuing to put your hearts and souls into the music we all love. Thanks for listening.